Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is not a diving podcast, but Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, so I feel like I haven't really talked very much in the last few weeks of the show. I mean, obviously I do these intros and I sometimes ramble on in these. But in the course of the various conversations that I've had over the past few weeks, I feel like I've just been being an interviewer and just sort of firing questions without giving too much about what I think about things. And I've done a few interviews of my own recently. That is to say, I have been interviewed a few times, but not in the podcast format. So you will have noticed probably if you're a regular listener or if you follow me on socials that we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of Hot Flush Recordings, which is the label that I run this year. And we're doing a whole bunch of different stuff around that and that has entailed a fair bit of press as you can probably imagine it's a key part of selling anything but you will know this again if you're a regular listener I'm consistently a little bit frustrated by the kinds of questions that I get asked and and also the kinds of answers which are written up from the answers that you give so typically when you're interviewed for a magazine or whatever you know, there'll be a conversation, if it's not done on email, there'll be a conversation which will be recorded, but then what actually makes it into print or into you know the online version of print is a pretty severely truncated version of what you actually say. And it's absolutely essential when you do an interview like that to make sure you have final sign-off on the copy just in terms of accuracy, right? So you're not uh, misquoted. Yeah, I think it's reasonable for journalists to push back on like full copy sign off, as in like you know you if you're talking on the record, then you have a responsibility to 
not row back on stuff that you say. But in terms of accuracy, uh, you are certainly within your rights to request sign off on that side of things. But like I said, the answers that you give are almost always condensed down into some shorter version, which almost always loses a bit of a nuance and, you know, just doesn't really translate into something which you feel is satisfactory, I think. And therefore, quite a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about in those interviews, which relates to, you know, how I started the label, what the key developments were in it, and, you know, my motivations over the years and how those have changed and how those have evolved, which is quite a large topic, really, and requires a fair bit of explaining, which is not always easy to do in a couple of paragraphs, right? You know, the answers that I tend to give are longer than that. You know, I can understand the need to put things into a slightly more bite-sized format, but, you know, it doesn't really get to the nub of the issue quite often. So what I'm going to do today and over the course of two episodes, I think, because I've been trying to put this down on paper and I think I need to do half of it first and then review it and then do another half. So over the course of two episodes, what I'm going to do is answer a few of my own questions that I've got in front of me now and try and explain a bit about the history of the label, but in the context of my motivations, the changing landscape over time, and just trying to put it in the framework of trying to make a living, I guess, as a musician, or trying to make a living from music, because that's a question I get asked all the time from people. It's like, how can I make a career for myself in a sustainable way? Because I think, you know, anecdotally, uh, I think people coming into the industry now think about it in much more of a career-oriented way, but also with the knowledge and the expectation that that's going to be really difficult. And I think that explains a lot of the really serious way that like stuff like social media is taken and personal marketing is taken. But also, despite the fact that that side of things is much more, I think, visible and sort of relevant in the forefront of people's minds when they're trying to get into making music as a career path. Despite that, people are, or young people are, still have that real hesitancy and real kind of reluctance to self-promote. And that's a real problem. It was a real problem that I saw amongst my peers when I was in the early stages of my journey with this stuff. That is a real issue which has to be got over and it's a kind of psychological thing, but it also can be worked through in practical ways, you know, and it's very important to understand it in a practical sense. So, I mean, I should add that there isn't a guest on today's show, although I will be referring to previous conversations I've had on the podcast, which I will put links to in the show notes if they're relevant. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Anyway, why did I start Hot Flush as a label in the first place? Well, I should begin by saying that I always saw Hot Flush as a record label primarily as opposed to a vehicle for releasing my stuff. Like I had extreme imposter syndrome and extreme uh, lack of confidence in my own output when I was starting the label and in advance of, you know, having that vision to do something which I thought was cool. And when I say cool, what I really mean is like the idea of record labels being cool. 
So I was really, really just taken away by the kind of romance of the record label logo, right? I really saw that as a kind of romantic thing. So, you know, when I was a kid and I was buying records and buying tapes, buying CDs, and I would see those logos on the back. So, you know, the Capitol Records logo or the Atlantic Records logo. And then when I got into dance music, stuff like Platypus Records logo and those kind of house bags and like Strictly Rhythm and, you know, those really iconic bits of branding, which would, I guess, capture your imagination as a record buyer and as someone who is really kind of like embracing music on a I guess on a cultural level right it just it's added so much for me like seeing those extra bits of I guess endorsement that would tell you what was on this record is going to be cool is going to be good it's going to be something that you are you know really engaged with so I wanted to create something like that basically and I didn't really think about it quite in those terms but looking back at it now that's basically what it was so I, I wanted to build that kind of identity I guess brand identity if you want to look at it in kind of like bold marketing terms that's what I really wanted to do and the label that really inspired me the most starting up was Hospital Records and we had Chris Goss who's one of the founders of Hospital on the podcast so scroll back and listen to that episode because it's great I mean that the way they've built that label is so impressive over time you know, both with uh, finding new music and developing the the sonic identity of the label, but also the event side of it, which is so strong. But what inspired me about what they were doing early on was the fact that it wasn't just a drum and bass label. There was a kind of vibe about it, but they were releasing stuff which was kind of all over the shop in terms of tempos. I mean, drum and bass is largely defined by the tempo. And they were not limited to that at all. So like the early landslide stuff and some of the London electricity stuff was much slower and much more, I guess, groovy perhaps, but maintaining the same sort of vibe as the drum and bass stuff they were releasing. So that really inspired me in terms of doing an electronic label, which was not bound by those sorts of parameters. That didn't necessarily translate into the early releases of Hot Flush because actually what happened was... After the first release in 2003, the dubstep scene really began to come together and I found myself kind of caught up in that in a really good way, to be honest. But it was very much of a the producers that I knew whose music I had access to to release were very much involved in that. And that was it was a kind of chicken and egg situation. Like the exciting music that I was around and that was inspiring me as a producer, as well as a sort of, you know, nascent AR guy was of that moment, of that movement. So it was accidental, really. But that didn't change the fact that I really wanted to be a platform for other people. Like, that's what motivated me. Like So the first Hot Flash release was was my tunes, but that was only because we had to start somewhere, right? And no one was going to give us their music if it was good to do a White Label 12, which is what the first release was. So I basically had to wait you know, whilst immersing myself a little bit in the in the scene in London and, you know, going to the record shops and all the rest of it and talking to people and trying to learn about it, but also kind of get my tunes up to the stage where I was happy to release two of them. And then once you've done one, that's the major hurdle, right? That's, that's the biggest hurdle to get over is the first one. But, you know, there were big challenges other than just getting the music together. So, you know, one of the things I want to make sure I do here is sketch out what the differences were back then and that's something we've talked about on the show a fair bit before 
but just looking at them objectively. So I don't want to make any value judgments with any of this. Like it's just pointing out what differences are. So what was required of a release and a new label in 2003? Obviously we were just doing vinyl because I mean, digital music didn't really exist then. This is the post Napster era, but there hadn't really been a shaking out of digital music in a way that was going to generate revenue and certainly not in the dance scene. I mean, DJing was very much still playing on vinyl. Like it was, that was it. There was very, very early days of you know, stuff like Final Scratch and um, CDJs were a thing, but you know, the early CDJ technology was nothing like what it is now. And there was quite a steep curve of improvement in that DJ technology. But in 2003, four it was nowhere, basically. So it was a case of pressing records and trying to sell them in shops somehow. So what do you, how do you sell in shops? Well, you need distribution. So you need to get into those shops. You need to have racking. You need to have physical space. And they need to sell. You know, you have to have the record shop staff on board with what you're doing because, I mean, having the recommendation of a member of staff is a really key driver or certainly was then when people were primarily going into shops in person and saying what's new this week getting given a stack of tunes and having the guy say and it was almost always the guy having the guy say yeah you want to check out this one I mean that's hugely significant in whether you're going to buy something or not right I mean just an aside like it's extremely intimidating going into record shops like as a as a kid and you know that whole high fidelity sort of cliche is absolutely accurate and it was so pronounced in the dancing like those kind of dance record shops i mean like stuff like hard wax is kind of legendary in it's how kind of rude <laughs> the staff can be you know and how judgmental they can be in terms of what you ask for and what you buy right having one of those people in each shop who are going to be pushing your record that's super important so we had zero knowledge and zero contacts and absolutely no kind of leg up at all with that so we impressed the first release 300 copies had no way of getting distribution nothing just had these records and so how do you do it well there's the legend and certainly in that era there was the legend of like, you know, selling records out the back of your car. And Wiley, the well-known MC, had famously sold, allegedly, over 100,000 copies of Eskimo out the back of his car. Now, without using a distributor, that was the legend on the streets. I'm not sure how true that is. But that's what people were saying. So it's like, you know, just going around shops and dropping off 20 copies or whatever, how many copies and pick up your money next week and drop off some more copies, right? And allegedly he'd done 100,000 copies of Eskimo like that. So that encouraged me, encouraged us. I say us because there was I had a partner at the time who lasted until 2005. That's what I'm referring to when I say us. So we tried that. And the first two or three releases were primarily sold like that. Certainly with the first one there was no other input. So I would go around shops and basically most of the time get told where to get off, right? Because that music, the music that was on those, on that first record kind of fit 
with the garage sounds kind of fit with the underground pirate sound but not really it was definitely to one side of it and you know we didn't have any dj support really so it was just like going in with two slightly weird sounding tunes on record having to watch the person play them and listen to them standing behind the counter and just getting a thumbs up or a thumbs down and most of the time it was a thumbs down and i can't describe to you how soul destroying it is going into a shop with your music having someone play it and then telling you they don't want to buy it and having to walk out of the shop with your tail between your legs that's a harsh lesson to learn really harsh lesson to learn and we sold a few of them sold a few not very many i don't actually know where the rest of them went i mean we can't yeah that was just an aside i'm not sure i mean i've got a few of them left at home but hmm okay so yeah about that time, I we, the two of us, got a slot on Rinse FM. And Rinse was still a pirate at that point, of course. And they were gradually, I guess, refreshing the roster of DJs they had on there. So they brought on a few people at the same time who were involved in this early dubstep thing, but it wasn't called dubstep at the time. It was, I don't know what we were calling it. I think it was just, I mean, referring to it as garage, but yeah. They got a bunch of people on, and I talked about this with Distance on the episode with him a few weeks ago. And so he was one of the people that got on. Search and Destroy were one of them. They did the third release on Hot Flush. And there were a few other people too. But it's important to note that we basically weren't playing out anywhere. So we weren't playing it forward. We were going down there and hanging out and, you know, knew all the people. But we weren't getting booked to play there at all. And I think it was just a recognition that, you know, we were doing some interesting stuff musically and, you know, could be trusted with the radio, but not trusted in a rave yet. So that happened. And there was a distribution arm, kind of. One of the guys that worked at Rinse was doing a sort of DIY distribution solution. And so he agreed to take, I can't remember how many, maybe 200 units and get them into the kind of grime adjacent shops or the kind of like underground garage shops. And I guess that was a kind of sign of acceptance. And when, you know, when he took them in, there was much more of a kind of like willingness to give it a crack. And we definitely shifted a few of those first releases and the Hot Flush 002, which is the first distance release that we did. We sold quite a few of those through them. So it was a kind of going concern at that point, but still extremely DIY. But it was happening, you know, and we sold enough of the the distance release to cover costs and then did the third one, which is, as I said, Search and Destroy, a track called Candy Floss, which was, I guess that was a step forward again from a distance one because that was a, a very typical forward tune at that time. I remember playing it to someone who was a regular forward guy and, you know, he was just like, yeah, this is forward music. It's like, yeah, okay, I've done my job here, A&R-wise. And then the next two were the most indicative of what I wanted to do with the label. So number four was Qualified, who is a UK Garage guy, and it was a UK Garage release. It was nothing dubstep about it at all, nothing dark about it at all. It's a very kind of like uplifting house and garage kind of a record with a broken beat version of the track on the B-side which was very much a, I mean, that was a very deliberate, very kind of studied move to tell everyone in that very small scene that we had 
I guess, wider ambitions. I think that's what basically we were saying with that. Like we weren't going to be limited by the parameters of anything really because I mean you know whilst acknowledging that what was happening in uh, forward and what was happening at that early sort of dark dubby garage scene or whatever it was starting to be called dubstep then despite the fact that that was really interesting and really cool and we were definitely involved in it like that was not what we were going to be limited by like we were going to be something else other than that as well as that so that was key in terms of positioning I mean it didn't do very well in terms of sales but it was a key moment I think in terms of how I felt about it and then Hot Flush 005 was Toast Even Knowledge which is to this day one of the biggest tracks we've ever released certainly in the context of the scene that we were releasing it into one of the biggest tracks that was a key moment because people that were into the dubstep thing but weren't quite engaging with the I guess the garage side of it but were interested in the kind of breaks influence side of it were really blown away by that track. And Toasty was just a... It's difficult to put into words how impressed people were with his music. Like, he was not in that scene. He was from Brighton. He was not coming to forward. He was just making tunes and posting them on the internet. And, you know, we got to know each other through, you know, dubplate.net. And, you know, he was giving his tunes out to a few people like Casper, who was called Quiet Storm back then. And you know, good friends of the Search and Destroy guys. And it was this, this kind of offshoot of this forward thing that people call Breakstep in a slightly uh, derogatory way. But that track was like, bam, we're here. Okay. That was like a real kind of like mark in the sand, I guess. So just stepping back from it, like clear that I hadn't appeared on the label since the first one, right? So we're 18 months in by the time of that Toasty release, I haven't appeared on the label. And it was very much trying to pursue that initial vision of building a brand identity. I mean, I don't like using those kind of terms. I definitely wasn't thinking like that explicitly at the time, but it was that was really what I was trying to do. Building that visible seal of quality, I guess, that wasn't going to be held down by one genre or by one tempo, even though you know, the stuff was broadly, it was like 130, 140. But we just wanted it to be wide ranging. And what we were doing on our rinse show was really wide ranging. So everyone else who got asked on the station at that point were playing forward music, but we would play, the kind of bread and butter would be sort of dark garage, but we would also play house, we would play loads of broken beat stuff. So stuff like jazz and over, landslide different european stuff oftentimes like speeding it uploads like those records would be like in the mid 120s and we would be playing late 130s and you know that would be our sonic identity is that we were going to be roughly in the mid 30s mid to late 30s bpm wise 130s but very sort of versatile in that parameter right and that was our kind of djing approach and, you know, it was quite unique. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, we caught a huge amount of hype or attention, you know, quite the opposite. We were very niche in those early years. Very, very niche. Like, just really plowing our own furrow. And I guess that's a, a good time to make the point that if you're wanting to make a life for yourself doing something, and this is probably true 
in many spheres, but I think particularly true in music, anything artistic, anything creative, I think the single most important thing in terms of establishing longevity is to do your own thing and be yourself. And that's a very easy thing to say, but you know, doing it consistently and doing it in a way which is seems, and this is a, another word I don't like, but in a way that seems authentic, it requires real commitment to that ideal. And it's, it's difficult to keep it up and difficult to be consistent with it. And I haven't always been consistent with it, I should, should point out. But I think that's a really important thing to flag up. Being yourself and expressing yourself in contrast to, I guess, what other stuff is going on at any given moment, right? So that, I think, is, yeah, I think it's an important point. So I've been talking about the label, and I haven't talked about my own output too much since noting that first release in 2003. Now, that wasn't as scuba. It was under a name that I sometimes use up till now, in fact, which is Spectre. Scuba was a really an accidental thing and I get asked often why I'm called scuba and there isn't really a good reason to be honest. Basically what happened was I had been making all kinds of different stuff, none of it very good for a number of years, just going around in circles with the same ideas and not really, you know, looking back at it now, not really pushing myself and not really branching out, working in a fairly aimless kind of a way. And what happened was this was in 2004, towards the end of 2004, I think, that I made a series of tracks which were very stripped down, very minimal, kick and snare and sub and a few effects, basically, you know, put together in a way that was 100% dubstep, basically, that early dubstep sound, as opposed to breakstep, <clears throat> very much heavy bass weight tunes, basically. And I wanted to get them to a few of the DJs who were playing, forward and those other nights but I knew them all really well and I didn't want to approach them with you know just a bunch of new tracks when they were used to getting this fairly kind of lazy bullshit music for want of a better term from me and I guess I must have had a fairly high degree of confidence in that music that I had made because basically I sent out a CD to DJ Hatcher I sent it to him in the post and I didn't say who it was from. I just wrote Scuba on it and my phone number. And I came up with the name Scuba just by looking around my room without thinking about it at all. When I say I had confidence, I can't have had that much confidence. Otherwise, I really would have given it some thought. But I wrote Scuba. I mean, it must have been on a book or something, something that caught my eye. Wrote it on a CD, sent it to Hatcher. And he called me the next day and was like, who is this? And, you know, I knew him. I was like, yeah, it's Paul. Paul from Hot Flush, and he's like, fuck, these tunes are great. I'm going to cut all of them on plate. And I was like, wow, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> and I was obviously extremely happy, but I hadn't thought it through at all. It was very much a kind of shoot from the hip. Well, these are good tunes. I'm just going to send them out and try and get people to listen to them without prejudice, I guess. I guess that reveals a little bit of insecurity as well on my part. But anyway, suddenly Hatcher was playing them, and Hatcher was the you know, the number one DJ really at the time for the genre. And suddenly he's playing all these tunes. People are like, Who's, who are these tunes by? Oh, it's Scuba. And I tried to keep it on the download for a while. I tried to not tell people it was me and in a really ridiculous kind of a way, considering how small the scene was. But maybe in small scenes, it makes more sense. I don't know. People are, you know, small scenes are more insular and people gossip more and 
worry about more but like you know the, the power of gossip is certainly strong in those scenes so it got to a point where i was like well okay let's put some out but i didn't really feel that they fit on hot flush i don't know why that was maybe that speaks to more insecurity like i really had a hang-up about putting them out on hot flush so we started a sub label and it was just called scuba label and the first one was a track called timber which was the first track that hatcher played a lot of and you know so people knew it and it went down well <clears throat> and i think the first release the first good release on hot flush on the main label was hot flush 13 which was a really slightly silly <laughs> tune that i made using a bass guitar a really distorted bass guitar that was the a side it's called twister but then the other side is called plate which is a really i think good it was probably my best early dubstep track probably which was on the Hot Flush Origins mix. But yeah, I was really reluctant to push myself through our channels, through this platform that I'd spent three years at that point building. So the first few scuba releases were 2005, but that Twister Plate release was 2006. So I don't know, looking back on it now, I was very reluctant to start pushing myself. And you know, what I was saying before about how there are challenges with self-promotion and you know, being confident enough to push yourself out there in that kind of a way, those are real. And you know, imposter syndrome is a huge thing and very, very successful people go through life without ever losing it. And I guess it was that, you know, a really strong dose of that. But then, you know, after a while, I did gain confidence. We've talked many times now on the show about how Dobstep blew up and the experience of that DMZ's first birthday in 2006 talked about that with joe nice and with distance and with apple blim and the story of how dubstep went mainstream first in the uk and then in the us is one that i don't need to go over again it's like i said go and listen to those episodes if you haven't done so already so 2006 and again with marion hobbs dubstep war show it's in 2006 it got to the point that there was a lot of attention around the whole thing and I was quite uncomfortable with the level of success that certain people were getting and how that was affecting their output and how I was positioned in relation to that. There was a, an element of rising tide lifting all boats there and I, I don't mean to sound kind of bitter or jealous, although there was definitely a bit of that at the time not just for me, but there was a fair bit of, um, yeah, there was a bit of a, a kind of feeding frenzy around this newfound interest that there was around the music. By the middle of 2007, I was, I'd had enough with it, but also I was in a position where I was able to quit my day job. And it was from that point, really, that I started taking, making a living seriously, just by definition, right? Because I mean, when you have to, put food on the table from what you're doing each month then you immediately think about it in a different way so that's one thing having a day job and doing something as a hobby chugging along as a hobby alongside lots of other people that you know doing the same thing but then as soon as it becomes a kind of going concern in a full-time sense that does change the game quite significantly so I guess I wouldn't have been able to do that without a higher degree of confidence in my own stuff but the two things run in parallel, i.e. the label and my own output, they've never sat easily together for me. Those two things are 
linked, but they sometimes come into conflict in terms of their objectives, in terms of what the interests of each thing are at any given moment. So there have been times where Hot Flush has been you know, largely a, a vehicle for my music. But as an A&R person, it's really difficult to judge your own output. And trying to be objective about what you make and how to fit that into like a business framework, which you have to do as a, you know, when you're releasing stuff, like that over time can be really tough. Especially if you're developing as a as an artist and doing new stuff and experimenting with new sounds for you, you know, broadening your sonic output and doing different things, which is something that I've always found motivating, but it's challenging in terms of selling music. So the two things sometimes come into conflict. Okay, a few other points about the development of releasing music on Hot Flush. The key infrastructure development we had was signing to a distribution company called ST Holdings for pressing and distribution, i.e. a P&D deal, which is to say that all of the risk, the financial risk of the label is taken on by the distributor. They pay for the production costs, manufacturing costs, all of that stuff. And obviously, that's a vote of confidence in your A&R. They basically allow you to do pretty much whatever you want creatively. And I guess like the test of getting that kind of deal is, is acquiring confidence in your ability to sign music, which is going to sell in sufficient quantities. So that was 2005, I think. It would have been 2005 that we signed that deal. And there's a guy called Chris Parkinson who I want to get on the show at some point. I think he's the manager of Calibre these days. He certainly was for a while. But ST Holdings eventually went under, but that was much later on. In 2005, 6, 7, they were very, very prominent distributor doing drum and bass, but also doing, I guess, breaks and sort of associated genres. So they definitely jumped on the emerging dubstep sound, the breakstep sound, and the sort of more what I would consider to be interesting sides of that, I guess. So they definitely did Hessel Audio in early days, for example, and various other labels, and were just really, really supportive and contributed a huge amount to what we did. Chris Parkinson, in particular, was, I guess, the guy who did most of the creative side in terms of getting labels on board and working with labels to develop them on the musical side and the artistic side, the visual side. And as I said, he was extremely influential on me and taught me a huge amount about how things really work. Because, I mean, that is a, a point to raise. that I didn't really have any mentors, really, up until that point. And he was the first person who really, I guess, took me under his wing and was really helpful in terms of just helping my understanding of the way the business works, the way the industry works, it was extremely generous with his time and extremely, as I said, helpful in terms of developing the label, making it into a label, really. Because, I mean, before we joined ST Holdings, it was just a, it was a very uh, sketchy ride by the seat of your pants operation. And without ST taking a punt on us, which is basically what they did, we would never have got anywhere, really, I think. That's probably a fair comment. So, yeah, Chris Parkinson and ST Holdings extremely important people in I think UK music generally not just us lots of different people I mean drum and bass primarily but yeah like I said the um, edges of garage and breaks and dubstep as well so yeah a couple of things I wrote down peripheral to that 
which is kind of interesting to note now, one of the things they encouraged all their labels to do was compilations and compilations specifically on CD, which is pretty mind-blowing now. But I think the big part of the reason for that is that CDs are extraordinarily profitable. And you've, if you've listened to the podcast regularly, you'd have heard me saying that before. But the CD model was just a thing of beauty, certainly from a label perspective and an artist perspective. From the consumer's point of view, not so much, right? They were basically a rip-off, I think. And the kind of decadence of the CD era, I think, to a large extent, led to the, the Napster thing happening although i mean that's a function of technology but i mean i think there was a there was a very low level of guilt on the behalf of people who were nicking tunes off napster and it was because of the fact that they'd been ripped off the consumer had been ripped off massively for 20 years or so 15 years or whatever however long it was from a label perspective though as i said you could really make a lot of money selling cds and they encouraged us to do that so the space and time compilation which was in 2007, was a result of Chris Parkinson specifically encouraging us to do that. And the various other compilations with their labels, um, the Hessel Audio one, what's it called, 118 and Rising or something like that, was a result of that too. That was a result of Chris Parkinson encouraging them to do that. And then we did another one called Back and Forth, which was 2011. And those releases were interesting to do because they opened my eyes to a side of the industry which I had had caught a glimpse of before. I think I told the story on one episode that I did some work experience as an intern at Sony Music. Was it Sony Music? Yeah, it was what I think I think it was Sony Music. One of the big labels anyway, one of the majors. And I worked in the compilation department, which is the worst place I could have been, really. I mean it was just like the most commercial end of the major label ecosystem. And I did not engage at all with it and, you know, was massively turned off. Didn't make much of an impression at all with anyone who was there. And yeah, just a waste of my time completely. But I mean, that was, a, I guess, a, a peek into the business of selling music at its most explicit. And so <laughs> when I was told by this person who I respected massively that I should be doing this at my own label and, you know, doing it in a way which is going to maximise revenue to our bottom line and you know get us into profit maybe even <laughs> that was an eye-opening thing for me and as I say that now I wonder where those bits of advice come from you know with people who are starting now like I'm not sure there are that many people like Chris Parkinson to give that sort of encouragement and give that kind of guidance and I guess that's partly why I'm doing this podcast but anyway that's an aside CDs yeah were still very much a, a big thing. And if you could get a big selling CD, then wow, you could really make money as a label. And vinyl was still chugging along. Like the decline of vinyl didn't happen till, well, I mean, let's put it in perspective. It had declined a lot in the mid 2000s. Like the peak period was definitely over and it was on its way down, but you could still sell a few thousand. Um, and the really, really big hits sold more than that. But it wasn't, unreasonable to aim to sell a thousand units of a record at all even at our level which was very low even in that late 2000s period like a thousand was the target but you'd start off pressing 500 and the thousand unit target would be achieved on the second repress so you know you'd be hedging your bets with the initial press of 500 and then a couple of represses of 250 each would get you to a thousand and that was a successful release for us anyway and we had a few that did more than that and a one or two which did much, much more than that. But 
it was very much a kind of cautious approach that we took. And that was the case 2007, 2008, 2009-ish. But there was a point during that period at which Chris Parkinson stepped back from his primary role, which was working directly on each release with each label. And the guy who replaced him was nowhere near as good. And it was problematic for us. Very, very problematic. So we lost our guidance, really, with stuff like how much we should press. Like Chris was a restraining hand very much on me. And the new guy was just like, how much do you want to press? And I'd be like, hmm... 700 expecting a bit of pushback and when he said oh yeah okay i interpreted in the the first few releases we did together i interpreted that as him thinking it was going to sell more and being confident of selling those 700 immediately and it transpired that that was not the case at all and we actually got into financial difficulty as a result of that as losing that cautious approach which was problematic really problematic until 2009 2010 were very successful years for the label. And once we got to those periods, we managed to pay off our debts with stuff like Mount Kimby releases, Joy Orbison, My Triangulation album, which did well, Mount Kimby album, which is our remains our most successful release to date. So it was by no means plain sailing. But by 2009, as I said, moving into that kind of much more successful period financially, and I guess, you know, financial success when you're selling records basically means you're connecting in a cultural level too, particularly if you're doing stuff which is at the edge of genres as we were, even then, because dubstep had become popular, but we were not doing mainstream dubstep at all. Like it was very much off to the side of that stylistically. Anyway, I've been going 45 minutes or so and we are in 2010. So I think this is a good place to leave it for this week or certainly leave it in terms of the chronology anyway. Like 2010 was a pretty good inflection point because after 2010 was a a real break. I think in the music, in my own output, the scene generally and the whole of like bass music and what we were associated with overall. So I'll talk about that change and then what happened afterwards in next week's episode. And I think I'll get more into the general themes of making a living and kind of, I guess, the the outlook you have to have to make that happen over time. I'll get into those themes more next week, I think. I definitely wasn't anticipating this going on for 45 minutes already. So, yeah, with the Hot Flush 20th anniversary stuff, go to hf20.news for all the info on the releases and the shows that we have coming up and all the stuff associated with it. You can support the show on patreon if you wish patreon.com slash scuba official if you want to get involved you like what we're doing on the show generally that's a great way to do it if you don't want to do that or if you can't afford it then leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast that really does help too follow the spotify playlist there's a link in the show notes and join us in the discord hotflashrecordings.com slash discord and i will see you back here same time same place next week for the next episode of the not diving podcast thank you Not a dieting podcast. Let's go. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.